This podcast contains sensitive content and stories of sexual harassment and may not be fit for everyone. Listener discretion advised. After the overhaul to Title IX, Justin Dillon, a lawyer, said, if the Trump administration had put half of the thought into the coronavirus as they did the Title IX regulations, we'd be going back to work by now. Welcome back to Catching a Case. In our previous episode, we discussed the basics of sexual harassment on college campuses, including how frequent it can occur. Specifically at Springfield, each member of the group expanded on the party scene and what they have observed over their time at school. Personal experiences were shared, providing some context of what it is like to be a witness to sexual harassment. It is critical that you stay alert in college and even in daily life because you never know who is around you. In today's episode, we will go beyond the members of this group. You will hear interviews of anonymous students who have shared their own experiences of sexual harassment. The other information that will be discussed in today's episode is the rules and regulations regarding sexual harassment. Megan, our researcher, went out into our campus and got some little FaceTime with some students who have experienced this issue. So I interviewed a couple students on the Springfield College campus, asked them a few basic questions about what had happened. And so a lot of the people I interviewed, it had happened to them freshman year. Um, totally different times, but a lot of it started with like being at a party, being drunk and just like the little flirting, harmless flirting, you could say. Um, Were there any other significant similarities between the people you talked to? Um, a lot of the people I talked to talked about how they had been like held down or even choked to a point where they couldn't say anything and had bruises on their necks for a decent amount of time. Uh, Some ended up getting raped. Some just got almost to that point, but got out of it. One person that I interviewed said, I was pretty drunk, but I still remember what happened. I wanted to go back to my room and I wasn't feeling too hot. He said he'd walk me back. When I got back to my dorm, I said I could get back to my room fine but he insisted I walk all the way back with him I was hesitant and thought he would leave when we got to my room but he stayed he was like let's just lay down for a minute then he started to kiss my neck and grope me I told him to stop and then he started doing it again he took it a step farther and I kept telling him to stop but he wouldn't listen then he put my hands around my throat and choked me so that I couldn't yell and then it happened Did she tell anybody? No, she felt like it was pointless too. 
I mean, she did let her, like she said, I mean, I did let him into my room, so I brought it on myself. Just because that happened, just because she let him in doesn't mean that she wasn't saying no, wasn't saying stop. Yeah, exactly. That doesn't remove the fact that she said no multiple times. That's not enough to prevent her from going to anybody, including Title Nine or just even like another person to say, hey, this happened. You know, it was a very bad experience. Yeah, I just feel like a lot of the girls just don't know what Title IX actually can do for you. They think, oh, you have to report the case like you're about to ruin someone's life. So another woman that I had interviewed said, I had gone into a car with my friends a couple and a couple other people. We ended up back at the townhouses. My friend went upstairs with one of the other guys. I was talking to one of the other guys in the house and I said how I was tired. He offered for me to sleep in his bed, so we went upstairs and laid down while he played TK. Then I woke up with his hands around my throat and he was raping me. I tried to scream, but his hands were so tight I didn't make a sound. I started flailing my arms and legs until he finally got off me. I ran across the hall to my to my friend and we got the hell out of there. Next day, I saw bruises on my neck. They were terrible. I had them for weeks. I'm guessing she didn't tell anybody either. Nope. I don't think I could live without telling someone. I don't know. Like, I just feel like I would not be okay. Do you think that you were the first person that, like, they told about this? Or do you think they've gone to, like, their own personal friends first? Or if they kept it in this whole time? Well, personally, this was one of my friends. And I knew she told her, well, she obviously told her friends that was in the room across from them. And she also told, like, her roommate. But she was, like, very hesitant on telling other people. So this is the first time you're hearing it? No, I heard this story multiple times. Oh. Yeah. So why do you think that even if people hear it, how come they don't tell anybody? She was too scared to reach out and felt that it wouldn't have done anything. It would have just been a constant reminder of what had happened, especially if she like reported it to the police. Because the court case could have gone on forever. Um, I had interviewed another woman and she said, I was at a party and I had been talking to this guy. So I ended up leaving with him. I wasn't feeling great and just wanted to go back to my room. We had walked all the way to his room, but I still wasn't feeling great. I kept telling him I wanted to go back to my room, but he kept begging me to stay. We sat down on his bed and he started groping me, kissing my neck. This is when I started to feel very, very uncomfortable. I told him to stop, but he kept going. <laughs> I had to take my clothes off, but that's when I started to fight him off me. I had gotten up, but then he pulled me back down and started again. I, ha- I got him off of me and got up. It took me several minutes until I could get free from him and I could leave. When I finally got a couple feet away from him, I made my break for it. I was so afraid he'd come after me that I literally ran back to my room. 
I have no words. I don't understand what would like, like why. After like reading these out, do you think it's worth it to even go out? Cause I feel like it ruins the whole mood of going out. You just gotta learn which uh, townhouses to stay away from. You should learn the guys to stay away from. I mean, like, does that mean townhouses? No offense, but townhouse four. I mean, I hear it's townhouse four. I hear it's uh, certain people. But, you know, um, I'd just be chilling there, so I don't see it. Like, I'd be in the back corner playing cup song, chilling. With water. Of yeah, course, with water. Of course, it's water. It's always just water. I was talking to another woman on campus, and she said, I was Snapchatting this guy. I had seen him at a party, and we ended up dancing and talking, like, all night. He had grabbed my butt a couple times, but I didn't think much of it at the time. We ended up going back to his room. Things started to get heated, but I wasn't totally sure about it. He ended up locking the door because, you know, things might have gone down. But then I, it started getting rougher, and I didn't like it. I tried to get up, but he threw me back on the bed. I thought he thought I was joking, so I said something, but he ignored it. He held me down more forcefully. We struggled for a little, and I finally got up, but he still wouldn't let me leave. He kept locking the door every time I tried unlocking it. I eventually tried screaming, but then he choked me. He undressed me and tried to have sex with me, but I put up a fight. Finally, I was able to get out. Jesus. That was the worst one by far. Were some of these like the same guy or is this just like what happened? Because <laughs> that's like fucked up. I don't know. We would like to thank the students for coming to share their experiences because it's not an easy thing to do. And to have the courage to speak up is what needs to happen more. So we commend these students for taking the first step. Our researcher, Megan, did a great job. Title IX is one of those terms that is thrown around, but I don't think the average person really knows exactly what it means and what it entails. It's promoted as the only thing standing between sexual assault victims and a lifetime of re-victimization, or the only possible way to investigate and punish cases of sexual misconduct on college campuses. But really, all it means is that the university becomes responsible for what should probably be a criminal investigation into a violent crime, uses questionable and non-standardized tactics, and the worst thing that usually happens to the perpetrator is getting expelled. Doesn't really sound like justice to me. Like most government regulations, the stated goal is something moral and just that appeals to the emotions and a desire to make the world a better place, but in practice falls short and leaves behind a whole host of unintended consequences. To see how and why we first need a brief history lesson.
Title IX actually goes all the way back to 1972 and was an amendment to the Higher Education Act of 1965. Title IX reads, no person in the United States shall, on the basis of sex, be excluded from participation in, be denied the benefits of, or be subjected to discrimination under any education program or activity receiving federal financial assistance. The law did wonders for equality and opened doors for women in the world of higher education and college sports. But that law, as it stands, doesn't say anything about sexual assault and how it's dealt with on college campuses. So the question becomes, how did Title IX morph from an anti-discrimination law to a set of rules on how colleges need to investigate and adjudicate sexual assault cases? These changes began in the 1980s with the movement to reconceptualize rape. Until then, rape was largely seen as something committed only by creepy, violent strangers and ignored the prevalence of assaults being committed by someone the victim knows. Advocacy groups began to argue that such crimes were a secret epidemic on college campuses and that the justice system largely ignored or failed these cases. Then in 1986, in an unrelated employment case involving the University of Chicago, the Supreme Court decided that sexual harassment falls under sex discrimination and thus was covered by Title IX. Also in 1986, a young woman named Jean Cleary was raped and murdered on a university campus. While Jean's murder was committed by a stranger, the Clearies and other advocates argued that acquaintance rape was an epidemic, especially on college campuses, and pushed back against the attitude that students should have sexual autonomy. Instead, the movement pushed for universities to not only recognize the problem, but to take preventative measures and find ways to regulate their students' sex lives. Jean's parents then founded the Security on Campus organization and led the legislative push to enact the Cleary Act, which was made law in 1990. Cleary's parents also argued that the university had failed to provide adequate security and safety information on campus, so the Cleary Act required all colleges and universities that receive federal aid to report annual crime statistics, disclose preventative and security measures, and develop and disclose procedures to be followed in the investigation and prosecution of sex crimes. Later amendments also required that the school offer victims counseling services and provide various living and academic accommodations. A series of Clary Act violations were made public throughout the 1990s and brought media attention to the situation, creating the widespread perception that colleges and the justice system just didn't care about sexual violence. One solution to this problem was lawsuits against the schools themselves for failing to protect their students. One of these lawsuits included a 1998 case in which the Supreme Court decided that schools can only be held liable for private damages if they knew of, and purposely ignored, cases of discrimination, aka only if the schools engaged in deliberate indifference. The definition of sexual harassment also morphed to include all sexual violence, as sexual violence was considered to be an impediment to a productive learning environment and thus robbed students of equal opportunities. This led the way for another case that decided that schools could be held liable for ignoring cases of sexual harassment. And while there's no one landmark case that transitioned rape from a criminal issue to a university issue, in a 2003 case involving Yale University, a federal court ruled that rape constituted a case of severe sexual harassment and thus fell under Title IX. As a result, colleges passed stricter and stricter sexual misconduct policies in part to address 
the problem and in part, no doubt, to avoid costly lawsuits. Because once a school has been accused of deliberate indifference, it's pretty hard to prove otherwise. The Obama administration then made Title IX a priority, and the government rolled out nearly 1,000 pages of new federal regulations devoted to sexual violence on college campuses. Unfortunately, while the government has implemented guidelines on what has to be done, it never issued any concrete rules on how universities meet those guidelines. About the only thing set in stone by the regulations was that universities could hold a lower standard of evidence than criminal cases, and that if they failed to uphold Title IX, they'd lose federal funding. The guidance also discourages universities from cross-examining students in order to prevent them from experiencing further trauma, even though cross-examination is one of the cornerstones of due process. All of this has resulted in a horrible mess that even feminist website Jezebel has sometimes called into question. Title IX defenders like KnowYour9.org will argue that sexual assault is actually too serious to leave to the criminal justice system, despite themselves admitting that there is widespread university mistreatment of sexual assault victims and that the worst punishment is only expulsion. Rape is a terrible, vile crime, and colleges have already demonstrated that they are not the appropriate avenue for any of these issues. For the most part, Title IX has the most power and authority over sexual harassment on campus. However, the rules have been altered recently to hear both sides of the story. If the victim accused someone of this act, they would be charged and the school or police would handle the matter depending on who it was reported to. Education Secretary Betsy DeVos issued regulations on sexual misconduct in education. She expanded Title IX to include dating violence as a new category of sexual misconduct. Ms. DeVos said, today we release a final rule that recognizes we can continue to combat sexual misconduct without abandoning our core values of fairness, the presumption of innocence, and due process. Another inter interesting fact from this New York Times article is that the president of the National Women's Law Center, Fatima Goss Graves, said, we refuse to go back to the days when rape and harassment in schools were ignored and swept under the rug. Which I think is very applicable after listening to the statements from the students we just heard. Because these girls, they're not speaking up and they're just like letting the people who did that to them win because they're not suffering the consequences that they deserve. And instead they're keeping it inside themselves, which might be mentally draining to say the least. I mean, I agree with it a hundred percent personally from like experience with sexual harassment because I've been there and it is a little draining, but when sometimes you just put the fault on yourself, so it's hard to reach out than when you just take too long and you're finally ready to talk about it. You just think the time's passed and it's too late to speak up. 
How long is too long, though? Um, good uh, question. It, I mean, different people take different amounts of time to cope with it. But like, a good couple months had passed for me, so I was like, that's pointless. So you just let it go? Yeah. The new rules outlined this month highlight the need to limit the complaints that schools are obligated to investigate and bring those to the attention of officials with the authority to take more corrective action and not other authority figures. So schools would be responsible for only investigating actions committed on their campus. It is also required that schools provide students with a fair processing and to treat the victims and investigate complaints fairly. Americans and people all over the world are grappling with changing and challenging circumstances, but our work continues. So I want to speak with you directly about a serious issue. Two years ago, I made a promise to address the scourge of sexual misconduct on our nation's campuses. Today, we take historic action on Title IX because we must. Because students, their safety and their success are at the center of everything we do. From Brown versus the Board of Education, to the Individuals with Disabilities Education Act, to the Every Student Succeeds Act, America has continued to expand and protect opportunities for students to learn. That's also true for Title IX. It was enacted to ensure, and I quote, no person in the United States shall, on the basis of sex, be excluded from participation in, be denied the benefits of, or be subjected to discrimination under any education program or activity receiving federal financial assistance. Title IX is a just cause and it's the law. Title IX has brought an end to many injustices since it was enacted, and the new rule we announced today will help end more. I take the responsibility of enforcing Title IX seriously. Our Office for Civil Rights takes that responsibility seriously. There is no place for sexual misconduct anywhere. Such acts are disgusting and unacceptable, especially when they're perpetrated in schools in elementary and middle schools, high schools and colleges, vocational and graduate programs, no student's learning journey should include surviving sexual misconduct. No student should be made to feel alone or abandoned by their school. No incident should ever be swept under the rug. And no student or teacher accused should be punished before evidence proves responsibility. Students who are subjected to sexual misconduct deserve deliberate and decisive action that carries the force of law. I promised that the department would take historic steps to craft a rule to do just that. Today, we release that rule. It takes bold steps to protect all students and their rights, especially their right to learn. Our work began well before we drafted a proposed rule by meeting with survivors, wrongly accused, administrators, and those who walk side by side with students every day. 
They were tough conversations, but ones we needed to have. Soon after we made a draft for public comment available, we were pleased to see an unprecedented level of engagement. Indeed, that's what we wanted. We even extended the public comment period in order to hear from everyone who had something to contribute. We carefully read and responded to comments from the American people, more than 124,000. This is how our government should work, informed by the people, representative of the people, and for the benefit of the people. Today, we announce a final rule that recognizes we can continue to combat sexual misconduct without abandoning our core values of fairness, presumption of innocence, and due process. Our rule empowers survivors like never before. The pain suffered by each survivor due to sexual misconduct can be lasting and profound. These gross acts are often about control and power. Those who have no control over themselves attempt to exert it over others. Our rule puts survivors back in charge of their education and their lives. With our rule, if a student is harmed, he or she has control over what happens next. Under our rule, schools must offer survivors help they can't get anywhere else. Although survivors may wish to file a police report or sue in court, Title IX protects their education, separate and apart from what the police or the courts may do. Under our rule, schools must offer free, personalized services that help survivors keep their education on track. Under our rule, survivors are empowered to make themselves heard and to then determine the kind of school-level response that will best support their needs. This approach protects them from suffering trauma all over again. No matter which path a survivor chooses, they always have the right to supportive measures that help them heal and continue their education. These measures include academic course adjustments, counseling, no-contact orders, dorm reassignments, leaves of absence, and class schedule changes. These are things schools can do almost immediately to make an important difference for survivors. If a survivor does choose to move forward with a formal complaint, our rule provides a clear process to do so. For the first time ever, Title IX codifies into law sexual harassment as the discrimination it is. Before now, administrations only addressed it through dear colleague letters, which are not legally binding and do not have the force of law. We owe students more than letters. We owe students more than good intentions. We owe them accountability through the law. We owe them rules that they can count on so they know their schools must take sexual misconduct seriously and treat everyone fairly. We wrote our rule to offer actual protections, and we respect the actual text of laws like the Cleary Act, the Violence Against Women Act, and Supreme Court case law. And for the first time ever, our rule protects survivors of dating and domestic violence, as well as stalking, the previous administration only addressed these terrifying behaviors in a footnote. Further, our rule makes clear that schools must respond to incidents occurring where the school has control. Acts of sexual misconduct do not always occur in a dorm room, a locker room, a classroom, or a study hall. That's why we'll hold schools accountable for acts that happen in off-campus settings like school-recognized fraternity or sorority houses 
on field trips, athletic events, during academic conferences, on travel, or on a school's computer network. Importantly, we added protections for K-12 students. We know that the number of sexual misconduct complaints in elementary and secondary public schools is tragically 15 times greater than it was a decade ago. Look no further than the disturbing and heartbreaking failures in Chicago public schools. Too many innocent young students suffered because adults didn't do their jobs. We took decisive action in Chicago, and we've since expanded efforts nationwide to ensure the widespread, shocking failure to protect vulnerable students doesn't occur there or anywhere again. Schools must promptly and thoroughly address incidents of sexual misconduct, including those that involve student-on-student misconduct and teacher-on-student abuse. No child should ever be preyed upon at school by those in authority, by those entrusted with responsibility for their care, or by fellow students. Adults at school must protect children, and they must foster safe learning environments. We are committed to ensuring that. Our Title IX rule covers new circumstances in which schools must respond to incidents of which they have actual knowledge. For K-12 schools, that includes reporting sexual misconduct by any person to any school employee. More broadly, our rule requires all schools to investigate every formal complaint and apply basic due process protections. Schools must follow fundamental principles like fairness, equal treatment, and the presumption of innocence. These are common sense measures that should be paramount in any effort to enforce Title IX. The truth is, however, the Title IX letter from the prior administration failed too many students. Survivors, those denied due process rights, and campus administrators all told me that the results of the letter did a disservice to everyone involved. Folks on the right, on the left, and those in between knew it wasn't working. There's the former president of the St. Louis County NAACP. He noticed that the unfair processes at many colleges disproportionately impacts African-American men. He called for immediate reforms. The ACLU insisted that while conventional wisdom often pits equal rights and due process against each other, there are important ways in which these interests are shared. Both principles seek to ensure that no student, complainant or respondent, is unjustifiably deprived of access to an education. Supreme Court Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg observed that some schools have not given the accused person a fair opportunity to be heard. She said, and I quote, the person who is accused has a right to defend herself or himself, and we certainly should not lose sight of that. It's one of the basic tenets of our system. Everyone deserves a fair hearing, she insisted. Justice is not a political issue. It can only come from a process everyone can trust, a process widely believed to deliver fair and reliable results. The outcome of the failed approach created by the previous administration's letter was a lack of faith in the system, a lack of confidence in the outcomes. And that's not fair to anyone, most of all survivors. Too often, these young women and men suffered unthinkable acts, mustered the courage to report them, endured a grievance process, and thought they had achieved justice only to have it overturned in courts of law.
those who insist that the previous administration's letter worked well can't ignore 171 lawsuits which found students' rights were not respected in campus proceedings. Many of those cases are disturbing. One involves a ROTC student who was accused of groping his ex-girlfriend while she was sleeping. The school found him responsible and suspended him without hearing from the ex-girlfriend herself, without citing evidence, and without allowing him to present evidence of his own. So the young man, training to serve his country, sued his way to the U.S. Seventh Circuit Court of Appeals. The court's panel of judges, all women by the way, ruled that the school's process, which determined guilt based on the accusation rather than the evidence, was fundamentally unfair. Another case involves a familiar scenario. One person's story contradicted the other person's story. The school's investigator interviewed many witnesses but could not determine credibility. Yet a school appeals panel found one student responsible. That student sued and the U.S. Sixth Circuit Court of Appeals ruled that if a public university has to choose between competing narratives to resolve a case, the university must give the accused student or his agent an opportunity to cross-examine the accuser and adverse witnesses in the presence of a neutral fact finder. And then there's the young woman in Kentucky who sued because the school's process was broken. The survivor was forced to relive her trauma through not one, not two, but appallingly four separate school hearings and four separate appeals. Process error after process error clearly did not serve the survivor well. And her case is still making its way through the courts six years later. Too often, students have been forced to sue to secure centuries-old rights to due process, which are enshrined in our Constitution. To be fair, Schools were pulled in an errant direction by the previous administration's letter. Our rule puts an end to school processes that ignore survivors or ones that bypass fairness. Now, there are some who suggest these acts are so personally devastating that they supersede any kind of right, procedural or otherwise, that any complaint must be believed without even considering the facts. But survivors need more than belief. They need justice. And justice without fairness is no justice at all. So the way to a better Title IX justice process is not to undermine rights, but to uphold them. The way to a better process is not to reform it, but to replace it. The way to put an end to the crisis of confidence on too many campuses is to rediscover the fundamentals of our founding on which our framers staked their futures for the sake of ours. These are enduring, universal principles. They first found their voice in the Magna Carta in 1215, when a king for the first time acknowledged that his power was not absolute. Inspired by that truth, the father of our Constitution, James Madison, said that government is instituted and ought to be exercised for the benefit of the people. Indeed, it ought to be. But Madison knew that wouldn't always be the case. So he introduced several amendments to the Constitution. The Bill of Rights, including one that, like the Magna Carta, redefined how people relate to their government. No person, Madison insisted, shall be deprived of life, liberty, or property without due process of law. 
This well-established right is the people's safeguard, a bulwark against what John Adams called the uncertain wishes, imaginations, and wanton tempers of men. Due process is for everyone because it is a principle that generations of people have abided by in order to uncover the truth. Our rule restores due process protections for students on both sides of a Title IX incident because due process is not just for the accused. California's Second District Court of Appeal ruled that when the accused does not receive a fair hearing, neither does the accuser. Our rule requires that a fair grievance process must include the right to written notice of allegations, the right to an advocate, who may be, but does not need to be an attorney, and the right to submit, examine, and challenge evidence. When a survivor and alleged perpetrator disagree about what happened, an unbiased decision maker needs to reach a factually correct conclusion. The fair and effective way to do this is for each person to tell their side of the story and answer probing questions. So institutions of higher education must hold a live hearing where advisors conduct cross-examination. Now, this isn't without reasonable limits. Survivors are shielded from having to come face-to-face -face with the accused. The rule forbids the parties from ever personally cross-examining each other. It also expands rape shield protections and excludes questioning that is irrelevant or privileged. A fair finding must equally apply a standard of evidence so that schools do not apply one standard for faculty and another for students, whether it be the preponderance of evidence standard or the clear and convincing standard. And a fair finding must never assume one party is credible and the other not. The final finding must explain how and why the decision maker reached conclusions and it must offer both parties an opportunity to appeal. Our rule protects survivors against any kind of retaliation, whether they report sexual misconduct, file a formal complaint, participate in a grievance process, or choose not to. Ultimately, our action today brings us closer to fulfilling Title IX's promise, equal access to education for all students. We hope that today's episode shed some light on how serious sexual misconduct is. For those listeners that are students, we hope that this information speaks to you on a different level. Don't think that this cannot happen to you because you are wrong. Always be aware of your surroundings, especially in a public place, because the last place you want to be is at public safety explaining what just happened. We thank you for joining us on today's episode. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Case Catching and tune in next Monday where we will take a closer look into the Title IX conditions, including an interview with, with the Springfield College Title IX coordinator. Stay safe, stay alert, and don't catch a case.